Chris, why are you so out of breath? I've just been so busy building local power, Lisa. And that makes you out of breath? I, it's a lot of work, you know. <laughs> <laughs> really, you got to put your whole body and mind you into know, it. All that building, building, <laughs> building. You know, uh, my three-year-old son, I, I read a lot about building, building, building. Yeah, yeah. So... What kind of building does he like to do? <laughs> he likes to do different building than, than we do here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he likes the Legos. You know, he likes the uh, the big machines, building the big buildings and things like that. Speaking of big buildings. Oh, yeah. That's a great, great intro to what we're going to be talking about here. Buildings that house lots of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people who might not necessarily be able to afford internet access that you and I can afford. Right, because in many ways, uh, for people who are a very limited income, uh, the market is broken. In fact, it's so broken that we would say there's no market for it, um, particularly in the larger urban areas. Those people are just left behind. And we actually released a report recently about that, people who live in San Francisco. We did, and it has one of the best names of any of our reports because it includes the word Monkey, Monkey brains. brains. <laughs> yes, which is the name of an internet service provider in San Francisco. It's been around for like 20 years. They are uh, quite irreverent, but they're also very good at their job and they're very dedicated to improving internet access for everyone. They they have a business model in which they serve, uh, I would guess, thousands of people and businesses in San Francisco. I don't know what the exact number is. They're, they're doing great things. And, and you remember this because you've already edited a podcast about it. I do remember that interview. It was with Hannah Rank, and I think it was a really good interview. And yeah, fact, Hannah, Hannah, I remember her because she wrote the report that I put my name on. Right, right. She, yeah. she, had the, she was the first author. I helped out with it. Uh, yeah. In fact, um, we are going to play that interview again, but we decided that since this audience is a little different than the Community Broadband Bits podcast, we'd go ahead and offer a little extra explanation for this audience, um, just to help explain things a little bit more clearly. So the report came out um, in May, the beginning of May. Um, and at the time that we did the interview, which was, wow, that was about a year ago, I think. <laughs> I hope it was in September of last year. Well, no, I think we had planned on releasing the report in September <laughs> of last year, but um, we didn't get the report actually released and perfected until May of this year. So this um, is totally a commentary on my ability to finish things. <laughs> no, I think what it is, is it's a commentary on how much work that we do. <laughs> yeah, I like that explanation way better. <laughs> so what do we what do we want to talk about? I think you know, we've, we've described a little bit how um, one of the, the key partners in this and I think the, the one that the group that came up with it is this ISP called Monkey Brains, an Internet service provider. Now, they have a specific way of delivering service in which they use both wireless and wires. You look at it from the point of view of the customer. You're living in an apartment building, perhaps. You have a wire that runs from the wall that goes to your router. Well, from the wall, it may go to the roof, and there's wireless transmitters on the roof, and that'll bounce around maybe one or two places in San Francisco, and then hop on a fiber optic cable to an exchange in San Francisco, and then it will um, go to the rest of the internet, wherever it's headed off to, most likely. Um, And so that's different from many of us have a wired ISP, a cable company, or a fiber optic company and our uh, access is not uh, doesn't touch a wire, wireless network at all. In this case, they use both wires and wireless. And so they have fiber optics, they've got wireless, they sort of do whatever it takes to get their signal around, and they, they do it very well. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about San Francisco. 
Sounds good. So you have been spending a lot of your time this summer working on a report about what Monkey Brains is doing in San Francisco. Who are Monkey Brains? Um, Monkey Brains is a local San Francisco ISP. They offer wireless internet service. Um, right. I think they might be the largest wireless uh, internet service provider in an urban area, but um, I'm not totally sure about that. That very well could be. They certainly service a lot of San Francisco, which is a large urban center, so I wouldn't be surprised. And they've been operating since 1998, and just recently in the last couple of years have been um, providing free or low-cost internet, well, free for residents um, at a couple of uh, low-income housing complexes in the city of San Francisco, in the Bayview neighborhood and the uh, neighborhood of Western Edition. We talked with uh, Preston Ray and Mason Carroll from Monkey Brains back in episode 264, about 50 episodes ago, um, about some of this stuff and just more generally about the technology they use. But you've really been zeroing in on how they're really at the forefront of what I think will ultimately be the solution we see in public housing in many cases, both from a technological side and also a pricing side. Yeah, definitely. They really took the reins in um, talking to a lot of different stakeholders, both the housing providers um, and the city of San Francisco to try to really zero in on how can we do this well? How can we do this easily and efficiently? Um, And so I think they really worked hard to try to make this a sustainable model for the future. And you're, you've written a report, you've written a strong draft of a report that we're still, we're still tweaking and, mm-hmm. and learning what mistakes we've made and things like that. Um, but you're going to be gone soon. So we're doing a preview <laughs> of it. I'm going to have to finish up uh, the work and inject my own errors into your <laughs> error-freed writing, I'm sure. Um, and so we wanted to, we wanted to do a preview because we'll be re- releasing this in September, we hope. And, um, and it's really interesting. We talked about it a little bit in that previous podcast with uh, Mason and Preston. Um, but there's there's a couple of things that I think we've learned since then that we want to get down. One of them, you know, that I think is really important is um, in 2018, I, I feel crazy saying this, we still have people building buildings. I mean, we're not even just low-income housing, but all kinds of buildings without proper wiring. That that blows my mind. I, you know, you don't spend as much time, you know, f- like fretting about things like this. Maybe <laughs> Was that surprising to you? Yeah, definitely. So the housing complex's names are Hunters Point East and West, and that's a series of like clusters on the east and west side. And Robert Pitts, which is a separate um, housing complex that was in Western Edition. And both of them were undergoing major remodels. Um, and we can talk a little bit about where the remodeling aspect came from, um, the impetus behind that. But yeah, so the they were undergoing major remodels, and that included rewiring of all the units. And so during that process, before, you know, Monkey Brains and other, you know, ISPs or the Department of Technology of um, the city of San Francisco got involved. They were wiring for Category 5E, which is a, a type of Ethernet wire that Right, we all just call it Cat 5E. Cat 5E, the, yeah. the, the industry peeps, but I'm not really part of that. <laughs> so <laughs> I say the full name. But yeah, so that wiring supports um, telephone or telephone and um, a fiber connection, but um, the fiber connection is would be slower if the way that they were doing it was um, they were offering just the telephone jack. But Monkey Brain stepped in and said no, and they put in a very simple change order and actually got them to jack for both the 
a landline and for Ethernet. Um, but that only supports about 100 uh, megabits per second of speed of symmetrical speed, which is fast, but um, fiber can easily um, support a gig. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's worth noting, I mean, just for people conceptually to think about, when we say Cat5e, um, what that means is four twisted pairs, typically, mm-hmm. um, which means you have actually eight wires in in the sheath. I think two of them would support telephone, which would then leave you with with um, six, but I think probably just really four to be able to use for data in the way that, cause I don't know if you can actually use six. Um, this isn't an area that I know quite a lot about. I'm sort of wandering out. Certainly on, me neither. Right, <laughs> wandering on a branch. but can't, but can't the fun you much of a bone. the fundamental point is is that if if they could do it all over again it would have been great to have two cat 5e wires to Mm -hmm. every unit um, so that you could um, have one dedicated for broadband and another one for voice services exactly and that's what um, Preston was saying in our conversations about this report is that um, if they had gotten to the sooner if they if perhaps the building housing providers had consulted somebody who works in this industry, they would know that just a simple to pull two instead of one wires into each unit would have made certainly a lot more flexibility in the future, depending on what they wanted, what the residents themselves wanted to do with those wirings. Right. And that's a, it's a very low cost right. at the time. Right. And so now they're kind of they're being smart about it and they did a workaround and um, pulled a new jack right in the nick of time. But um, it would have certainly given them a lot more flexibility to if they wanted gig service to have it. Hey, Lisa, let's jump in here. Now, why would we want to do that? I just want to note how much younger I sound in that in that audio recording. Yeah, actually, you do sound a lot younger. I'm, I'm more distinguished now. I have more gray hairs. Um, so we wanted <laughs> okay, to. Okay, that's what it is. <laughs> we wanted to. Um, we wanted to just talk a little bit more about this and make sure people had a sense of what we're talking about. So um, when these buildings, it's a sort of a campus of of buildings that have a small number of units per building, but it's a a public housing um, campus. I mean, technically, it's a. Um, they just use different terms for it now because it's um, it's um, it's owned by the. House Housing Development Corporation, a nonprofit, but um, the point is, is that they were fixing it all up, improving it, and they ran a Cat Five E cable to each building. Now, Cat Five E is uh, capable of of very fast transmissions. I mean, we're talking about, I think, definitely a gig, possibly ten gigs under the right circumstances over short distances of like well under a hundred meters. Um, that's the the issue that we're talking about is that they have one of these cables to each unit and they were planning on using it just for the phone. And then Monkey Brains came in and said, hey, if you use the right attachment termination point in the wall, we can have a jack that will allow you to use both a phone cord and 100 megabits of internet access. Um, if they if they used it entirely for internet access, they could do a gig, um, or they could use it only for phone. But because Monkey Brains intervened when they did, they're able to make sure every unit could get 100 megabits and have phone service as well. So the lesson learned here is consult the right people. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of those things. We've, I talked about it with Travis Carter. Um, hey, Travis, um, who is rapidly becoming the most mentioned person on the podcast. Travis um, is um, the president and CEO of USI. Right. I don't even know if he's the president, but he's definitely the CEO. Um, U.S. Internet. U.S. Internet, uh, a, a, a private company doing uh, fiber optic Internet service to most of the homes of Minneapolis and eventually all of them. Um, and I, I mentioned them this issue and I said, you know, if 
you had this ability to get into public housing at um, with this kind of wiring, would you be able to do really interesting things to make very low cost access affordable? And he said, yes, that's what they need. And, and too few of these public housing units or even apartment buildings in general have this kind of wiring. Make, and so if you're building a home or if you're building a, um, uh, a large unit, um, condo buildings or whatever. Multi-family for any, dwellings. Right. You want to make sure that every unit, or if it's just your home, you know, all the places you would want to have a TV or other, like your computer and stuff, you want to wire that properly. And you want to send all of those wires back to like a common point, like a, we sometimes call it a telco closet. But fundamentally, you want to make it easy so that if you want to have an internet service provider come into your home to offer you service, they don't have to run around your house attaching wires to things. They just go to one room in your house or one room in your multifamily building and they can connect everything from there. They don't have to go into an apartment. They don't have to do anything else. That's what we're talking about. And too few places realize that. Um, you know, if you wanted to go crazy, you could have conduit and then, you know, you could make it more complicated. But at a minimum, you want to make sure that each unit has, uh, I would say, at least two of these cables running to it. One for phone, one for high capacity internet access. And, you know, fundamentally, you may want to have multiple um, cords if you want to do, um, you know, leave yourself room for expansion in the future. But I think too many places just think, well, Comcast will run their cords or AT&T will run their cords and that's the problem solved. And that's actually problem created. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's go on with the rest of the um, earlier podcast. Yeah, I want to hear more of me too. <laughs> <laughs> so if we step back for a second, I mean, these were areas of the city that have been significantly rehabilitated under yeah. a specific program that you wanted to tell us a, a little bit about. And I think it's it's relevant for making sure that other cities that are looking at these opportunities get it right the first time. Right. So um, rental assistance demonstration is a it's a we're going to throw a lot of like acronyms out, but um, it's the it's a federal program that is run by the Office of Housing and Urban Development, which is a federal agency. Um, It's a process by which um, public housing run by the public housing authorities of cities and municipalities gets converted into Section 8 eligible housing. So that means it becomes owned by a private entity, whether that be like a nonprofit housing developer or just mm-hmm. a regular housing developer. And let me just say that that, that makes me nervous. I haven't looked into it right. enough to get a sense. Like I, don't, I wouldn't say I want to have a knee-jerk reaction, but it makes me nervous, but it is a reality. Mm-hmm. And so we need to make sure that whatever kind of low-income housing stock we have is ready to support these kinds of services. Right. Not to go too far down that road, but I think a lot of housing advocates would just say better funding for public housing instead mm-hmm. of transferring debts onto the private entities but the reality is it's it's a popular program at least in the federal government because it's debt neutral for them they just transfer the public housing and and that it makes um the actual housing um eligible for debt financing which it can't be if it's a public housing unit and other types of financing which Mm -hmm. um and basically it it lightens the load for public housing authorities to be quite frank but um section 8 housing basically is uh, a, well, Section 8 is actually a voucher where um, individuals who are low income that need rental assistance can uh, apply and get that funding to basically reduce their costs to just, I think it's about 30% of their income. 
Um, in San Francisco, there's a minimum amount that they have to pay for rent, which is, I believe, $25. Mm-hmm. Right. We're getting a, a little bit yeah. off of subject, but but while we're here, Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, uh, is incredible. It, it got a lot of really good reviews for good reasons. So for people who are interested in, in what it's like to be um, on Section 8 housing in different, well, particularly in Milwaukee, but but also more generally, um, that is just a fantastic read. Um, but the, the point here, I think, is, is that where you have um, these kinds of big clusters, centralized public housing, you have an opportunity to do um, relatively insignificant one-time costs to really solve this problem. And that's what, what Monkey Brains is demonstrating. That's what your case study is really going to talk about, is that when these properties are being redeveloped, you can get the wiring internally right. You can make it easy for an ISP, a, prof- a for-profit ISP or a non-profit ISP, um, to come in, offer good services that will work for them. Now, in this case, Monkey Brains also had the benefit of a program uh, from the California Public Utilities Commission, what we often call CPUC, and specifically a program within there called the California Advanced Services Fund, which people often refer to as CASF. The California Advanced Services Fund is a more specific type of funding for um, renovations that have to do with um, increasing broadband access. Um, so, well, the entire CASF fund, I actually, you know, just as you were saying that, I was thinking, I've long lamented that states are pretty much only putting money into rural areas and not putting money into urban areas. Um, but California is, is a rare state and possibly the only state I know of in which um, the California Event Services Fund can be used for both rural or urban needs. Yeah, basically, they define the funding eligibility based on unserved or underserved. And that is basically whether you have access to a certain threshold of what they determined to be broadband, oh, which yeah. we can talk about. <laughs> but it's basically, oh, it's yeah. a lot low. The most recent um, re-up of the funding that the legislature passed um, changed or lowered the threshold from the FCC's definition of broadband to California's own definition of broadband, um, which is unfortunate, but for a different time to talk about. Sure. Um, yeah, but so basically, depending, I, I can't remember exactly what the... 6-1. Um, 6-1, okay, so a lot lower. <laughs> Still, regardless, there are people in, in San Francisco proper who don't have 6-1 cap- capability or access. Certainly, I think probably in this case, it's just out of reach um, financially, mm-hmm. um, maybe infrastructure-wise in some parts, but um, certainly financially. Yes, and so in this case, um, Comcast had bid to serve the buildings, and Monkey Brains um, decided that they could do better. And um, and then they got this money from the CASF, which really helped um, enable them to, to really, I mean, do an incredible job of providing the highest um, the service that we see in public housing anywhere that's available at no charge to residents. Yeah, definitely. Comcast bid was much higher. Uh, I don't know the semantics of how much it was. Um, but basically, Monkey Brains both committed to offering really low internet service and also found different funding resources that would help them along. Um, the CASF being a huge one and then the rental assistance demonstration. So if you, it's kind of like putting pieces of the puzzle together mm-hmm. for financing. And also you have to have a city that's looking to renovate and update its public housing, which 
as we've seen everywhere, is kind of the case where it needs a lot of updating in a lot of major cities. So it's not like it wouldn't be able to be possible. But yeah, just finding those pieces of financing to get it going. Right. Yeah. We think this is broadly replicable, which is why we're both talking about it and writing about it. Hey, Lisa, can we jump in again? You and Hannah had a discussion about the difference between fixed wireless and wired connections in the home, especially when it came to working in public housing. But I think we should elaborate a little bit. Yeah, and, and I think we, we've learned a lot more since we finished the report exactly what was going on there. And so, you know, what's important to know, first of all, the city of San Francisco has a lot of fiber. And so looking at Hunter's Point East and West is instructive. San Francisco has a ton of fiber. When Monkey Brains was first connecting Hunter's Point East and West, I believe both of them, perhaps it was just half of it. But the point is that they wanted to bring it online very quickly. And so they threw some wireless on the roof and they were able to just connect it to the rest of the Monkey Brains network. Over a, over the next year, I think, San Francisco brought its municipal fiber network to connect Hunter's Point. So now Hunter's Point is connected um, entirely by fiber. But the wireless allowed them to move quickly, and it still offered a super high-capacity network. I've looked at some of the network logs, and you can see the traffic, and, it, and their, their wireless network can handle it just fine. Now, again, to make sure people are understanding this, you may have in an apartment building, uh, you may have a wireless router and people have their devices, a laptop, a tablet, whatever on that. From there, it goes to the router and it probably runs on the copper wire, which is Cat5e, to the building uh, basement, a telco closet, might be near the roof. And there, it'll either jump on fiber to go across San Francisco's municipal network to the main data center in San Francisco, or it may travel wirelessly for some part of the way and then get on a fiber network to go to that data center. So the way that data moves in this case is actually kind of irrelevant to the user because they get a high capacity approach and it gives monkey brains flexibility to be able to uh, build their network quickly and have it be resilient. Right. I think also, though, they have wired connections in their units. Right. So let's discuss a little bit about how that um, serves the people who get those connections. This is your gentle way of saying, Chris, you misunderstood. This wasn't a technical question. <laughs> it's a question of why do we care that they have a, a wire to their unit rather than sharing Wi-Fi with their neighbors? You know, the important point here for our perspective and what Monkey Brain's core reason for getting into this is that if you just share Wi-Fi on the, on the, on the floor and you have five different units, ten different units sharing that Wi-Fi – you're going to have a different range of, of quality experiences. Some people that are far away from the access point, it's not going to be as good. And, and on the other hand, you also have like maybe you have some teenagers that are like screwing around and they're thinking, ah, if we do this thing technologically, we could sort of spy on some of the neighbors, right? That is the sort of thing that it, when each home is individually connected, you have more privacy and protection. Now, if you're a sophisticated person on a shared Wi-Fi, you could still be very protected. But I think there's just less room for error and there's much higher quality when each person, each each household has their own connection rather than having to share a connection with others on their floor. Also, I was wondering about the number of devices, especially because there are a lot of people who are low income who use mobile devices. Yes. Um, and I think that there would probably um, be more dependence on that 
Wi-Fi in in the buildings because so many people are using mobile devices and they're hooking into right. the Wi-Fi. Now, I think it's worth noting that if it was Monkey Brains doing this versus uh, a company like Comcast, I think you'd have different results. And so I could imagine a company is trying to cut corners and keep the prices as, as low as possible. To the internal cost to them of doing it, they may use a solution in which people would not be able to connect as many devices, but you would be possible to build a Wi-Fi network in, in, in a building that was able to support a sufficient number of devices. So there wouldn't necessarily have to be a problem with congestion, um, but that would really depend on the motivations of whoever was building it. These are mostly one-time investments, so right. they can provide service on an ongoing basis at a very low cost if you get the one-time investments right. Whereas I think too many public housing facilities settle for having Wi-Fi in the hallways, which doesn't deliver a good service to everyone. It's certainly not an even service. I think there's security concerns about it, although there are practices that could remedy a number of those. Um, but the challenge fundamentally is that I believe we should be striving to have internet access to everyone in their home that is not interfered with by their neighbors. And that's something that I believe Monkey Brains is really getting right. Yeah, I think this fits into Monkey Brains' belief that practices that involve digital inclusion is necessary to get everybody up to speed for digital equity. I mean, quite literally, building wine Wi-Fi is maybe easier to, to install. Um, it's maybe less labor intensive, but it definitely does not get people up to the standard of um, internet access that they need to be creators on the internet, to be participants of the internet. Um, In-unit ethernet is not that hard, but it takes some coordination mm -hmm. and it takes some planning and it's not just like popping in a Wi-Fi connection at the last minute um, and calling it a day. Right. I think probably some of this just comes from, I mean, the people who run public housing are very busy. They're very specialized. Right. They're overworked. Many of them probably are just thinking, oh, wireless is the future. Right. Wireless will be good enough. And but something that we've mentioned before is that you know Monkey Brains is itself a wireless ISP. Um, now, they, they're very deliberate, as many WISPs have become, in terms of recognizing where wires are better, where wireless is better. So they may actually have a network which is wired from point A to B, wireless from B to C, and then wired again from C to D, and then it may even be wireless at that point from D to the device E um, as you go from different hops in the network. And um, and they basically pick the lower cost option and, and not just lower cost of one time, but lower lifetime cost uh, of how it's going to work out, I think. So at the time when you interviewed Hannah, she wasn't sure if the Robert E. Pitts building had 100 megabits or gigabit access yet, but I think that's been resolved. Yes. Robert E. Pitts does have a gigabit to every unit because they were able to drag um, an extra Ethernet cord um, because they intervened fast enough. And this is much more common now. In San Francisco, as we discussed in our paper, um, it, it took some years of coordination to figure out how to make sure the different agencies and parts of San Francisco that were involved in these remodels and rehabilitations of these different facilities, because there's actually many more of them now than there were when we started working on this paper, um, they really have their act together. And so, you know, there's none of this last second change order stuff there from the beginning, they do it and it can be very low cost. Let's just briefly talk about this though, but, but um, the, the services, depending on the wiring of the home, they're getting a hundred megabits or a gigabit, right? 
Right. So um, I believe in Robert Pitts, which we've talked about less because it was a little bit more of a streamlined effort. Um, I believe they have a, a gigabit there because mm-hmm. the, the project just was more coordinated um, because it was after Hunter Point East and West. But at Hunter's Point East and West, they have 100, 100 megabits per second already. If they want more, they can coordinate that with monkey brains. One of the benefits of doing this recording now and getting things on the record when we haven't nailed everything down is that any mistakes we're making now will be corrected in the paper, <laughs> yeah. which will have more Preston, detail. Preston, listen to this. <laughs> if it's not right, let That's me right. know, please. <laughs> so, um, and, and we we should just note, Preston, uh, Mason, the folks at Monkey Brains have been incredible. We would so not helpful. be able to do this podcast without them. They, um, the report without them, uh, they have been very open uh in sharing a lot of this information. So um, I just give them tremendous respect. And I wanted to, I just wanted to ask you, you went to grad school, um, you know, you started grad school, you got an internship studying, doing broadband policy. Did you expect that you would say monkey brains more than the entire cast of Indiana Jones and the, the Temple of Doom? No, but I'm, it's a pleasant surprise, let me tell you. <laughs> Sometimes I'm talking about it in staff meetings, and I th- I think people hold back giggles because they are doing really great work. They just have an awesome name. Right. Well, I, I constantly tell people, particularly when I'm not on the West Coast, I'm, I start talking about the project, and then I'm I'm going to say monkey brains, and I say... So I'm about to say the name of the ISP. You have to understand that these people are very serious. They're very good at what they do. Their name is Monkey Brains. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. You can't blame them for it. They also have an awesome logo of like a very crazy looking monkey it's mm-hmm. awesome <laughs> yeah well probably a very smart monkey yes uh but we want i want to ask you who's paying for what and, and this is something that just uh, we're really going to nail down very clearly in the report um but uh, in general right now um people are getting 100 megabits a gigabit depending on which building they're in how much are they paying yeah so this is one of the best parts about this is that the residents are not paying for anything right now. And um, Monkey Brains has worked out a really good, I think, offer that they are getting a little bit of funding for it. But um, at the end of the day, the residents aren't paying anything. And that's really important because even for service calls, I believe. And so that's like something that really promotes buy-in if they know that there's there's no little nickel and diming happening. It's free and they just really want you to get involved and they want you to get you to that fast internet service. Right. And over time, uh, there will be some charges. Presumably, we don't know, and no one knows yet, hasn't been settled how they might be allocated because uh, over time, as we see more public housing agencies do this, we might see some of them paying for it, um, you know, just as they, they may other uh, kinds of services or they may pass through a charge. Um, but I, one of the points that we want to make is that any charge that, that will go through, no matter who pays it, will be reasonable. It's not going to be $50 per household unit or something like that. And there's some confusion, I think. Let's just... Wait, are we are we interrupting again, Lisa? Yes, of course. You know, I love to interrupt. Um, no matter who it is, no matter where it is, no matter what it is. Um, so there is confusion about who pays what for how much internet access. Let's clear that up. Sure. <laughs> that's, yeah, let's be very clear about this because it's, it can be a little bit confusing. So um, and it actually varies in different buildings. Um, so 
in the buildings that we're talking about, Monkey Brains receives $10 per household using the network, I believe. Um, now, the, the people who own the units don't actually pay that directly. The, um, the authority or the, the, the owner of the building pays it. Um, to monkey brains. Um, the $10 is actually is enough to recover the, the costs of what they've put in and over time and the ongoing cost of the bandwidth. The bandwidth is actually very low cost, so that's not as much of a problem. Um, the real challenge tends to be customer service. And so that's why we're even talking about a cost at all is because if something goes wrong, you need a company that's monitoring it, can fix it, and that sort of a thing. And so it's not enough just to say we're going to do this and we'll find an ISP to do it for free. Um, you want to make sure a company like Monkey Brains is able to recover its costs and even have a thin margin to be motivated to do it. And so that's what the $10 covers. And um, I don't believe anywhere in San Francisco do residents pay that directly, but there are a number of buildings in which the owner of the building pays the cost of $10 per household uh, to Monkey Brains. And another a piece of that that actually is is um, we discuss in the report quite a bit that's important is that um, Monkey Brains um, takes questions and problems, technical support questions from residents of these buildings um, in the same way that they do their their other customers. A piece of it that uh, we were very clear on in the report is that the Community Tech Network, a local nonprofit group, and, and actually some other nonprofits as well, have all helped to help educate people, get devices in their hands, make sure that they have the literacy um, to know how to use these devices well, and also help answer their technical support questions that may not be related to the network. So that, um, that Monkey Brains is not constantly fielding calls from someone who says, um, my browser is not working uh, because of a, of a user error that they're having. Um, one of the challenges, exactly triage. That's a great word for it. Is is trying to make sure that that people are contacting Monkey Brains for problems that are related to Monkey Brains and not related to the device mm -hmm, itself. Mm -hmm. So it's a community effort, right? And so I I think that this is a I love this model and I and I think it's appropriate to um, to put a price on it. I mean I think there's. In a in you know a different world, maybe everything could be free that people rely upon. I don't think it's unreasonable to um, expect households to contribute ten dollars a month uh, for high quality access to the internet. Um, I think that it can be challenging for them to come up with that money, and that's the problem we need to resolve because um, we need to make sure people have the resources to get the things they need. Um, but and and I realize some of our audience may be strongly disagreeing, but in my mind, if we can find ways to have um, ISPs delivering service and, and making a small margin at $10 a month, it's going to be far easier to solve the low-income digital divide than if we're just trying to figure out how to do it at no cost to end users. The key here is that um, Monkey Brains is a for-profit business. They have costs that they have to control, but their goal is not at all just to find another place to, you know, get money from. It's it's definitely always been a priority of theirs to um, just get these folks to have fast internet mm -hmm. in any by any means possible without finding funding from other sources or coordinating really strong relationships with the housing providers to get them to believe that it's important too to then, you know, maybe think about investing in this in the future. That's always been their tactic. 
from this. And fight. this is this is one of the reasons that I I sometimes yell um, at people. I think more often I, I don't yell, but sometimes <laughs> do you I'm, need a reason? <laughs> <laughs> more insights from Chris's management style. <laughs> Just kidding, everybody. Um, we um, is is that sometimes people like when they're thinking about Comcast or the big companies, they've just generalized for-profit companies. Yeah. And it is worth noting, I mean, we had many companies on here that are for-profit companies that right. are that have had a larger impact than nonprofits have had. And so it is worth remembering that, um, you know, for-profit can mean a lot of different things. Absolutely. And it often depends on the scale of the of the firm and, and who's running it. So um, the... The last thing that we want to make sure we touched on was some of the digital inclusion pieces. And I think I think this is one of the, the pieces that has to fall into place nationally because um, one of the biggest costs that monkey brains could face would be these service calls, uh, particularly among populations that do not have very good um, internet access skills, um, computer literacy. So having a digital inclusion component can take some of the pressure off of an ISP and allow them to keep their costs down if they're not the the front line of answering questions about why a, a computer might not be working. Right. So um, one of the people, the, the organizations rather, that we haven't really talked about as much that were sort of peripherally involved in this whole um, effort is... Well, they, yeah, they're certainly, I would say we wouldn't want to minimize their role in making no. it happen, but... No, it, but just in terms of this actual process, mm-hmm. um, they were integral in getting um, Monkey Brains involved as um, Community Tech Network um, run by Cami uh, Griffiths. We talked with her about this. And I think um, her um, sort of, um, <laughs> I was going to say, partner in crime, uh, Mike McCarthy, who had yeah, worked yeah. for the city and is uh, um, and has been an incredible resource for me over the years, both in terms of San Francisco and also just thinking about these issues more generally. Yeah, definitely. He's been helping us along with this too. Um, so CTN, um, Preston Ray is, was, I don't believe he still is, but if I'm wrong, Preston, we'll know. let me know, um, <laughs> was on the board of CTN, um, which is, uh, if you guys haven't heard of it, it's a digital literacy and inclusion nonprofit. And basically their main focus right now is doing training programs in places where there are populations that don't have adequate access to the internet or are not versed in the internet. And so they mainly focus on the what they call the three legs of the stool. I never get that right, which is um, adequate and affordable internet access. One stool. Yeah. One, one leg. One leg. See, you do <laughs> yeah. too. Um, and the second leg is... Um, getting a device that would that they prefer to use and can use well. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is, yeah, just getting them versed in how to use the internet. I think a lot of times with um, getting people involved is that they're wary of using the internet. They've never used it before or had, you know, spotty access and they just don't think it's a really powerful tool for, tool for them. And so Cami and CTN, they work with generally older populations, uh, maybe populations with disabilities or folks that um, whose language first language isn't English. And then also communities with a lower income who don't maybe have as much access regularly to the internet. The ISP Monkey Brains took care of the fast, adequate internet access, um, affordable 
being the main component. And then the other two is just getting that buy-in. If you have a device that you know how to use and you like using it, that's half the battle. But also just feeling safe and comfortable on the internet, knowing that it can be a great tool to connect with your friends and family, and also a tool to um, participate in the economy, whether it's even just going on a job board and finding a job Mm -hmm. to like you know, starting a small business. There's lots of shades to that. Um, but all of those make you feel like a participant in one of the most, you know, powerful forms of connection, the internet. So, so Hannah, as you've been doing this work, um, you know, what have you found in terms of what are the limits of, of some of these folks, um, having, taking advantage of access to the internet, the, the low income populations? The thing that Cami brought up that was one of the main ones is um, affordability, you know, the prohibitive costs of the Internet. Um, a um, really recent Pew report showed that about, I think I want to say it's 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 20 percent of Internet users are smartphone only users, which, you know, you could just say that people use their smartphones more. But when paired with another statistic, it shows that it's really about affordability, which is that people making less than $30,000 a year, you know, a good portion of those are only smartphone users. And so that tells us that something that you guys have talked about constantly at ILSR and um, the Community Broadband Initiative is that it's a lot about affordability when you think about how how expensive it can be to have a wireless internet plan, I'm sorry, an internet plan rather, and to have a, um, a smartphone service. The, the pairing of those two can be prohibitive for people. So they just choose, you know, I need to call people. I need to text people. Mm-hmm. I'll just use my internet on my phone and, you know, try to work with that. But if anyone's tried to like edit a paper or look something more in depth up online, it's just on a smartphone, very hard to do. So it's much better to have like a device where you can have all the options for using the internet. Right. And so as we're we're talking about how to keep those costs low, I think it's worth just um going over exactly what um the some of the costs and the technology are to do this. So you let's just say that you have a new um low income housing building going in or complex because a lot of times these are you know, sort of like a campus of multiple buildings. We're not seeing giant high rises being built anymore. That's uh, not a particularly good way of dealing with um, concentrated poverty. So you have that. So you have a couple of of costs. One of those, you have a couple of one-time costs to really focus on. And it's worth noting that it is often the debt from these one-time costs that makes these projects more challenging. And so if you can find one-time sources of capital, then your operating costs can be quite low. But those one-term costs you might think of as, one, wiring the individual unit, and that um, should be, I mean, well under $100 um, per unit to do, um, particularly when the walls are open and everything else. I mean, well under $100 to to, to get all that um, wiring to each unit, two Cat5 wires or, or a fiber or two. You know. um, at that point, when the walls are open, it's really cheap to put a lot of things in it. Running conduit would be nice. In some cases, it, it may be impractical. But and then typically, just for people to can see conceptually, you want to run each unit um, to a closet on that floor, maybe, or down to a basement, a room. You just want to make it very easy for someone to come in and just by going to one or two rooms in your com- in your building, be able to connect home, any unit anywhere, basically. Um, so that's one of the the one-time costs. And then the other, which is more significant, would be um, getting high-quality internet access to the building. 
something, um, either through a fiber network that could be very costly if the city does not already have one um, nearby, or uh, you can use uh, what Monkey Brains uses in many cases in its business, which is a high capacity fixed wireless link, uh, where you might be looking at on the order of three thousand uh, dollars per radio. I think to do that, I, I'm not as good yet at remembering if it's per pair or per radio. Um, but those are one-time costs that that you know again as you if you can just take care of them and not have any debt associated with them, then your operating costs are very low to be able to deliver high-quality internet access, whether from a nonprofit or from a for-profit company to those units. Again, then your largest cost is going to be your kind of um, help desk is what we call it. But if you have a digital inclusion program, which is something that you probably really need anyway for other benefits, and they can really help take some of the pressure off of the ISP, then at a relatively low charge, you could have you know a very good ISP taking care of a lot of that rather than doing it yourself. Well, there's certainly no problem doing it yourself in many cases. Um, but um, in my experience, people would rather have a specialized company doing that anyway. So um, Monkey Brains is showing that this can all work and you're, you're explaining to the world how how that works. <laughs> yeah. I think what you touched on is really important. If you have buildings that have the capacity for really easy, fast internet connectivity, that's really half the battle. And then people, organizations like CTN, helping get that buy-in on the resident side is also a huge effort. Hey, Lisa, before we do the credits, and this is this is once again future Chris, not past Chris, I just wanted to say that um, the, the folks at Monkey Brains, um, particularly Mason and Preston, they were terrific. We couldn't have done this report without them. They were very patient with the amount of time that I took in doing it. Anyone who works with us has to be patient. <laughs> um, the the folks um, working for the city of San Francisco were incredibly helpful. And one of the things I want to note is that this came about because of the the people who are out there doing their jobs working in the trenches. Um, they developed interesting ways of getting this stuff done. And eventually... The people who run the departments um, have swooped in, I think, and, and, and done good things to make sure that it um, becomes official policy. Sometimes I think looking back, we look at these things and we think, oh, like how did the CIO or CTO, how did they come up with this great idea? And often they didn't. They get credit for it. And we don't notice that it's people who are doing the job every day in the streets that are coming up with really good ideas that are fixing these kinds of problems. So I just want to make sure that we give credit where it's due. Um, There's credit, a lot of credit to the city of San Francisco for making this happen. There's a lot of credit for Monkey Brains and for people working in the nonprofit for Community Tech Network and stuff like that. Sometimes it takes um, a lot of effort just to recognize that you need to talk to those people who are in the trenches. And sometimes in big organizations, big entities, that's hard to do. Right. It absolutely is. And I and I hope that things like this lead to more breaking down of silos and a recognition that, um, that there's a lot of wisdom um, mm-hmm. from people who are actually out there doing these things. Yeah. So with that, we want to thank everyone for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. I feel like we built some local power today. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ILSR.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. And you can find links to everything else by going on the internet, generally. That's with a capital I. It is absolutely with a capital I, the (laughs) internet. We're not talking about some other things. I'm not going to get that. Oh, my God. While you're at ILSR.org, sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Those newsletters are great. 
If you like this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as they say at the Brave New Workshop, which is a brilliant improv here in Minneapolis with a long tradition, if you didn't like this show, share it with your enemies. <laughs> I edit this show myself, and it's, I produce it with Hibba Murray and Zach Freed. And you do a great job. So do they. Why, thank you. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Thanks, Mr. Dysfunction Al. This is Chris. Please join us in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Building Local Power.